Hello, and welcome to the Deep South Dharma podcast. I'm Christy Bates of Oxford, Mississippi. In a few minutes, we'll have a talk on why mindfulness alone, at least as it's commonly understood in Western culture, is not the end-all be-all for mental health. The talk is called The Original Recovery Program and offers hopefully a more well-rounded understanding on how we can support ourselves in ending mental anguish. By the way, in our podcast the following week, we plan to have a recording of a beautiful healing meditation by Jaya Seeley, so be listening for that in episode three. Right now, we have some exciting news. Jaya and I have settled on a location and will begin facilitating the local Deep South Dharma practice group here in Oxford on Saturday mornings beginning September 14th. The meeting is from 10 to 11 a.m. in the chapel of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Oxford. The group will open at 10 a.m. with a time of meditation, so you'll want to give yourself enough time to park and come in before that starts. UUCO is just nine minutes from Old Miss, less than half a mile once you turn off of Highway 314. So take a look at our website, deepsouthdharma.org, for address and directions. Each week, we'll have some meditation, a short talk, and some time for discussion to help us increase our joy in daily living for ourselves and others. And if you want to join our Zoom meeting Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Central Time, I went and just put the link on the website. So go to deepsouthdharma.org and scroll down to the section that talks about Dharma contemplation online. You'll notice there are also now bios on Jaya and myself to help you get a sense of who we are and what our groups might feel like for you. Later this week, I'll be adding a whole other section to the website that will allow us to keep you informed of meditation retreats and other events that Jaya or I or both of us are involved in, so check back every so often. That's it for our announcements this time. I'll turn you over now to the original recovery program. about what you experienced this evening or, or in your practice during the last week, if you were here last week. All righty. So I'll go ahead and launch into a topic, which is, um, you know, and I can't even remember what I called it in the email, but what it, <laughs> what it is, is has to do with um, with the Dharma with Buddhism as sort of the original recovery program. Um, and what I mean by that is um, the reason that the Dharma can be applied to anyone's life, no matter what your religion is, what your religious background is, is that the Dharma includes these very practical, teachable, usable uh, <coughs> tools and awarenesses, insights, um, that actually, since the time that uh, the Buddha first taught, have shown up um, in other recovery programs in much later years. Um, but it's, it's a very complete and thorough um, 
set of skillful means and insights that uh, I felt like it was worth visiting this topic uh, sometime in the last week. We had uh, World Mental Health Day. And one of the things that's occurred over the last 15 years, or 15 or 20 years, has been um, a lot of emphasis and research on how helpful mindfulness is um, for people for reducing anxiety and depression symptoms, for uh, boosting creativity, all kinds of things. Um, and that's true, and it's a little bit misleading at the same time. Because when we speak just about mindfulness sort of pulled out of context, um, you know, it's hard to say, well, that by itself is good for mental health, right? So if we talk about mindfulness in the strictest terms as just present moment awareness, you know, with, with a non-judgmental attitude toward yourself, present moment awareness of what's going on internally and what's going on externally, you know, that's, that's a good start. Um, I would say that would be a pretty decent indicator of mental health if we could have some clarity about what's going on inwardly, what's going on externally. But a lot of times what people mean when they talk about mindfulness is good for mental health is they mean meditation. They mean regular meditation is good for mental health. That's also true. It's also incomplete. Um, so meditation is, is, is the means by which we train the mind to stay present. Or we train the mind to do what we're asking, essentially. It may be to stay present, and then we may sometimes deliberately ask the mind to sit down and we make a point of planning for 30 minutes, right? So we're asking the mind to kind of visit the future, right? But when we have a well-trained mind, we can sit down and plan when we choose to, and then the rest of the time we stay out of the future, right? Or we sit down to do some inventory of the past year and take a look at patterns in our lives that are going well, patterns in our lives that we want to change. We're deliberately asking the mind to visit the past, but then at other times we stay out of the past. Now, few of us really have minds that are that well trained, <laughs> but that's what we're aiming at, is that instead of having a mind that just drags us around into our fears and our regrets and our worries and our our internal gossip and our judgment and all of that, that we have a mind that's a good companion, um, uh, a good companion that, is, that can help us you know, do some planning when that's what's called for, or do some review of the past when that's what's called for, but otherwise that allows us to, to be fully present in our lives um, and, and, and enjoy what's there to enjoy, to respond with compassion to any pain that's present, whether that pain is in ourselves or someone else. Um, and, um, and, and can enjoy um, a sense of balance um, or a sense of equanimity, fuller word there, um, with the way things are constantly changing. So equanimity is, is, is more than balance, it's sort of that ability to quickly regain our balance with that recognition that it's normal for life to kick us around, <laughs> right? It doesn't mean that we're losers, that life kicks us around. Um, that 
we have things that go well for us, things that go in, in difficult directions, have times of uh, where we just have a lot of uh, gaining, winning, things are, you know, we're sort of racking up accomplishments in some periods of life, and then other times, you know, it, we just can't pull anything together. And every human being has these periods of time, of decline, of increase, um, times where we feel um, very well supported, and then times where we feel lonely in a crowd, you know. Um, times that we feel a lot of, you know, we get a lot of praise and appreciation, um, fairly or unfairly, and then times where we face a lot of blame, either fairly or unfairly. And the more that we can recognize that, oh, this is, this is how things are, um, the more at peace we'll be. Now, strangely enough, one of the best ways to notice that that's how things are is practicing regularly so that in 30 minutes that we had times of quiet, times of the door squeaking, uh, a whole rain came and went. You know, all kinds of things happened. That's not even to mention what went on internally for us. You know, for everybody in the room had, you know, had some parallel to that. <clears throat> that weather change that happened outside this building also was happening internally for us. Um, and so as, as we become aware that that's just normal, um, we, start to, um, we start to disengage from this false sense of identity that is built on, I'm a good, successful person if I can get things to go my way, and I'm a failure if I can't get things to go my way. I mean, our, that's ridiculous. You know, our culture is ridiculous. The way that we think of success as the, you know, if we have a high percentage of getting life to go our way, that's what we consider successful, typically. Um, and so what, one of the things that the Dharma does to restore us to better mental health is to get a more grown-up version of what, of what success means, or even to look at is success whatever we mean by that, is that even a valuable, you know, is that, is that something to attain, right? So if by success we mean, I want to train, you know, we were talking last week about the work of uh, training a more flexible mind and personality. If that's our version of success, that is attainable. We can do this work to have a more flexible mind and personality um, that responds with, um, that responds with relative calm, um, or sometimes even great calm, to changes that occur, that responds with kindness toward ourselves and others. So that those things are trainable. Um, that, that can increase. Um, but I find that um, in, so, you know, of course, in my job, I do work with, with people's mental health. And very often, you know, people have heard something about mindfulness and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's really interesting how people don't get very far without some basics. And some of those basics include what we would, um, what we would maybe in these circles connect to as the five precepts, right? So it's just various principles of non-harming, right? So the... Uh, 
the, not killing or harming living beings, um, not not being not lying, not taking what's uh, not being freely offered, um, not misusing our sexual energy, not misusing communication, um, and not intoxicating ourselves in whatever our favorite ways are of doing that, which are various. Um, and it's really interesting, um, you know, more and more, um, I'm finding that <laughs> it's not that it's pointless to work with people when they're not doing those things, but it's pointless to talk about mindfulness or, you know, it's pointless to sort of uh, try to give people the impression that they're going to get very far in increasing their peace of mind while they're doing these things that do nothing but upset our peace of mind. You know, and so it's not about like being moralistic with people, right? It's, no, it's nothing like that. It's just like, okay, this is a natural law. If I tell lies, I'm gonna feel bad, right? If I mess with somebody else's reality, I'm not gonna be at peace with myself. And if they just look at me funny across the table, I'm gonna be paranoid, you know, and worried about what, what they know or that kind of thing. I mean, that's just to give one example. So the precepts have to do with just training and recognizing and bringing ourselves into line with, um, with natural law. It's not about moralizing. And so um, that, that, um, that is a basis for health. I ran across a training um, this week that I thought was really I always think it's interesting when I run across a list that I haven't run across before, because Buddhism is so full of lists. Um, and this was a list of, it was four practices. Um, the teaching was about practices that help ripen and mature the mind for practice. And so, uh, just to give a little backstory, the, the backstory was that um, there, the Buddha's one of the Buddha's first attendants before his cousin Ananda became his attendant for decades. There was an attendant who worked with him that wanted to, um, to sort of go off by himself to practice. Um, it, it, you know, it's sort of, um, um, there's sort of like this, it, it's funny because we get mixed messages in the Dharma sometimes or, if we, if we misread certain things, it's sort of like the idea of, on the one hand, we're encouraged to have sangha and encouraged to, that the beginning of the practice is surrounding ourselves with uh, wise friendships and people who can offer some guidance and um, people who are trying to um, achieve some of the things that we're trying to achieve. But on the other hand, there's sort of this, um, I, you know, this sort of ideal of the Lone Ranger, you know, that, that goes off by themselves to discover the truth, right? And um, so one thing that I find helpful to remember is that, so this particular Buddha that, it, that, that brought clarity and wording to mindfulness and to the Eightfold Path and all of that, um, he was what was called a, a Samana, some Buddha, which is basically like not just your regular Buddha that shows up every so often, right? <laughs> Apparently in human history, every so often a Buddha will show up, but he is, but, but he was a Buddha 
who came along at a time when the Dharma was not apparent in the world, right? And so, so yes, he had to be sort of a kind of a lone ranger in that. Although he had a number of years of support to get him ready for that point. And that's, and that's the point of this story. His attendant was ready to go, thought he was ready to go practice. He asked the Buddha three times. And each time the Buddha said, well, this is really not the time, which his attendant thought he just meant, I don't have another attendant, right? It's not a good time because I don't have another attendant. But he asked three times, and as is often the case in these old Dharma stories, um, when, when the Buddha is asked something three times, it's like, okay, you must really want this, you know? So, um, so he cut him loose, gave him uh, permission to go do that, and it was not long at all before he was absolutely flooded and miserable with, uh, the story says, you know, thoughts of sensuality, thoughts of every kind of craving. He just was at dark thoughts, just really, and he came back to the Buddha and said, like, what happened? Uh, you know, and, and told him what happened, but just said, what happened to me? And the Buddha said, well, you know, nothing, you know, nothing, un, nothing unpredictable. It's just this mind wasn't ripe enough yet. It just wasn't, it wasn't time yet. Um, and so he stayed with the Buddha a while longer and continued in his training until it was time for him to be able to tolerate practicing by himself. So the practices that um, were suggested in this particular teaching, uh, one is uh, asuba, which is not a practice we give much attention to um, typically. It's the practice on being mindful of unattractiveness. And so what it has to do with is, is recognizing um, we deliberately practice it surrounding those things that we develop strong craving about. And maybe in, in our language today, we might say, play the tape all the way through, right? That would be a practice of asuba, you know, like suba meaning attractive or beautiful. Asuba, anytime you put an A in front of something in Pali language, that's the opposite, right? So asuba is like, play that tape all the way through and see if that really seems like such an attractive option, right? And um, now, of course, for, you know, for the early monks, and I guess for monks and nuns even today, there's also the playing through of uh, if people are particularly, um, particularly craving around bodily things, then there's the whole, uh, you know, 16 or 32 body parts uh, chant that we've, we've, you know, laughed over before that's just... But laughed because it just seems so ridiculous that anybody in our culture would deliberately practice this. It's it's the body is seems like oh this sack of hair you know with hair and nails full of pus and this and that you know and the idea is is it's not self-loathing which is what it would get used for in our culture if we tried to use it, <laughs> but but just sort of that that reminding that this body is not where we're going to find lasting happiness. Right. So it's not saying the body is terrible. It's just saying when we get our fantasies going, we forget all that, you know. So, but but playing the tape through. So whether it's about bodily cravings or any other kind of cravings, a suba practice is playing the tape all the way through to the misery that that it would bring to give in to those cravings. And the second is metta. And um, so metta is uh, being the word for loving kindness. Um, 
Another, another way to think of metta is as true, true love. Um, meaning a love that is not uh, self-serving, that is not about getting anything for ourselves. It's, metta is about giving to ourselves and others this just sort of unending, uh, unconditional wishes for safety, well-being, um, joyfulness, you know, just wishing good things for ourselves and others without condition. And, um, and it is said that, uh, um, that that combination um, is a really powerful, you would think they almost would work against each other, like focusing on, the, on what might be the downsides of certain situations and meta, but actually that there's a lovely synergy that it creates, that it's sort of that thing of playing the tape all the way through on things that may not be actually beneficial and also in practicing metta realizing, oh, I want more for myself than that, right? So those times when we get looped into repetitive cravings, whether they're of a relational sort or cravings for um, substances or cravings for foods or for particular behaviors or whatever, it's, it's, it's that sense of really playing it through and remembering the pain or shame or disappointment they lead to and meta practice to help sort of remind ourselves to want better for ourselves, to want more for ourselves. And then the, um, I just kind of made myself a little note here to, because I knew that I would have a moment of uh, running blank on it or wanting to skip to the last one. Um, the fourth, I mean the third, is um, practice of the four foundations of mindfulness. Now we did a bit of that this evening. Um, the four foundations being mindfulness of um, breath and body, mindfulness of mental states, just noticing what's going on in the mind, mindfulness of emotional experience, and mindfulness, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is sometimes called mindfulness of dhammas. Um, if you have ever been to treatment and you've sat in a group and they've checked in talking about physically I feel this way, mentally I feel this way, emotionally I feel this way, spiritually I feel this way, you have pra done a practice of the four foundations of mindfulness. It's like checking in and noticing, oh, I can actually feel mentally clear and emotionally heavy. I can, you know, we start to realize this is what, that, those four foundations help sort of break apart our illusion that our self is like one particular thing that's unchanging. We see that our experience of having a self is like, here we have these four foundations of mindfulness where the weather is constantly changing. Physically, I feel different moment to moment. Mentally, I feel different depending on how well I've slept. You know, emotionally, things are constantly being metabolized through this emotional center. Some of it seems to belong to me. Some of it is just maybe, you know, I may even pick up stuff from people in the room around me. You know, I can't call that myself, and yet I'm having an experience, you know. And then this, uh, when we check in spiritually, we're often checking in on how connected do I feel? How hopeful do I feel? How alone or not do I feel? in this world. And so, um, so the Asuba, the Metta, the Anapanasati, that's the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, and then lastly is 
working very, in a very focused way with impermanence. And so with any of these practices, any of those actually, if you can be aware of impermanence while doing those practices, but just making a practice of going through a day moment to moment and noticing that it is natural, normal, not a betrayal for things to change. And very often we feel betrayed when things change if we didn't want them to change. Um, or if they're not changing to our speed and liking. You know, we have a tendency to feel somehow out of sync. And, you know, part of good mental health is coming to recognize, oh, it's not up to the world to adjust itself to what I think my preference is. It's, it's coming the other way around. But it's not a matter of trying to force ourselves. I want to be careful with this because it's not about I'm trying to force myself to like something I don't like. It's I am bringing myself to notice that, oh, this is happening. And I don't like it. It's also good to be aware of that. I don't like it. And I'm allowed to not like it. And this is happening. Right? Because very often, we come into contact with something. We don't like it. We just notice the part of we don't like it. And we immediately start going into fantasy about how we're going to make it be different. Or what can I use or do to take me out of this reality that I dislike. But very, and it's very infrequent that outside of some sort of having some kind of regular spiritual practice, it's very infrequent that we just sit with, yeah, this is happening, and I don't like it. And what's that like? And can I offer myself loving kindness, right? So when our loving kindness meets pain, we call that compassion, right? But just being with you instead of trying to hurry and change reality. Um, and so just noticing, um, noticing impermanence can help us when things are difficult to know, and I've said this before, and I know some of you have heard this, but I'm going to say it for those that haven't. It really has, can be really useful to know that when the way things are is painful, that we can take refuge in knowing that either the situation will change or how I feel about it will change if I stay with it, right? If I keep running from it, right? You think about that like grief, unattended grief, right? Here's a situation we need to grieve. We keep running from the grief. We can run from the grief for decades. When we come back to it, it feels like it just happened yesterday, right? But when we stay with something, with support, with time and space and a supportive, you know, atmosphere, you know supportive surroundings and people, we can be with something and know that, okay, this situation is not going to change, maybe. It, you know, some cases it will, but in some things like, say, there's been a loss, there's been a death, that's not going to undo itself. You know, that how we relate to it can soften and change if we allow ourselves to stay with it. Um, so I want to stop there, because um, it'll get late before I know it, if I'm not careful. And... Um, I want to allow people to share just whatever comes up for you with any of that that we talked about and just um, in some ways uh, obviously that sort of topic of you know the idea of mental health or whatever is such a giant topic um, but 
to just that recognizing that you know we have certain basics <laughs> um, that can support us in that. Um, and I would love to hear your experience with that. Thank you. you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always, feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.